I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. And as the man said, this is Chachi LaPrette. Host of Breakfast with the Beatles in New England and New Hampshire and Maine and Massachusetts and uh, here with Professor David Gallant from Suffolk University who has the pleasure of teaching a Beatles, clo- a Beatles course to freshman students. Is that correct? Hello, David. Uh, how are you, Chachi? Always a pleasure. And yes, that is the case. And uh, spring is here finally, huh? That's correct. I do want to say that our program, our podcast is brought to you by Subaru of New England, Direct Tire and Auto Service, Mox Moving and Storage, and Gennaro's Italian Eatery. And all of our friends, these are all Beatle lovers, so please show some love to our sponsors. And as I told you, Breakfast of the Beatles can be heard on WUMB in Boston and on 92.1 FM and 97.1 FM in New Hampshire and Maine. We have a very special show. Here we are in March, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Our last episode looked at the life of George Harrison during his birthday month of February. We had a lot of fun with that. And now we're in March, and we're welcoming a dear friend. I love this woman, and she's beloved in the Beatle world. And she, it started with uh, her with a dream back in 1986 of writing and publishing the most in-depth analysis of the life of John Lennon. She has become the foremost authority on the life of John. And she has uh, developed and written a uh, series of books called the John Lennon Series, a narrative history in novel form since volume one. And she is up to right now, we have, should have known better sitting here on the table. And this should probably be uh, nine volumes. She's on volume four right now. And she is such a dear friend. Let's welcome Jude Sutherland Kessler. Hello, Jude. How are you? Oh, Chachi, I am doing great. It is always a real joy, a sincere joy being on the program with you and and now with David as well. So thank you guys very much for including me today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I I, uh, wonder, Chachi, though, if we deserve such fine Southern hospitality. I love that. Can you guess (laughs) where she's from? David, can you guess where she's from? Well, I I have sort of uh, peeked at the bio and I know that she has been part of some of your other programs over the years. Yes. And um, uh, are we a, uh, a native of uh, Louisiana? You have that right. I lived for years away from Louisiana. In fact, I lived for five years in Pennsylvania, and I was just starting to be able to hear the southern accent when I moved back here again. So it, it's, I, I'm back to a hopeless southern drawl. <laughs> and uh, you had also, uh, uh, I think um, you had done some teaching in Alabama after your master's from uh, College Park? I did. I taught at, um, in Alabama for about six years on the college level, and my husband went to the U.S. Naval Academy. So in the 40 years that we've been married, we've moved 32 times and really have seen the entire United States. Wow. We've been in Kansas City, Newport, Rhode Island, Virginia Beach, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Florida, all over Florida. We have seen the country. Yeah, there's a. The, I I work with a woman who's had a similar experience with the. Uh, uh, her dad was in the Air Force, and so uh, you do see the country and oftentimes the world that way. And um, I think that probably um, uh, it's kind of unofficial research, but I think in a lot of ways your your John Lennon chronicles. Uh, it's really a gift that you have for finding 
and blending voices, you know, uh, whether they are characterizations of the Beatles or some of the other scholars that have been out there and other chroniclers, uh, you you almost have to develop a, an ear uh, for the way people talk and how that reveals themselves. And now that you've revealed all these travels you've had, uh, being uh, military affiliated, uh, a lot of that seems to fall into place and make sense. So there, I've given away your secrets. There you there go. You go. <laughs> Plus the fact that you don't really make deep roots anywhere that you live because you know you're going to be moving along soon. And so the deep root, the connection that I made was with the John Lennon series because that would go with me everywhere I went. And that is true. Before we continue, I do want to identify our spiritual leader who is running the board who occasionally chimes in is David Yaz. So David, thank you for being here today. And producing Thank you, Josh. Uh, today's pod. So pleasure to be here. I feel relevant now. Thank you. You do. <laughs> I do want to ask Jude. Jude just Jude does so many Beatle events all over the country. And as I get older, more and more, I just want to stay home. I'm afraid of flying and afraid of catching a cold. And I don't want to get on a plane wearing a mask because uh, then they all think you're sick. Uh, but <laughs> but Jude just came from Beetlefest. How was Beetlefest this year, Jude? Uh, it was fantastic. We really didn't plan to attend this year. We thought we would be in Liverpool during that time frame doing some more research on Volume 5, but as it turned out, the person that we were traveling with had other plans, and at the last minute, we went to the fest still full of people. The Beatles continue to amaze us 50 years on. You're not just talking about baby boomers. I would say that this year the bulk of the attendees were 20 and 30-somethings and a lot of teens. And the the passion for the Beatles, I don't think, will ever diminish. It just keeps moving to the next generation coming up. That is amazing. And one of these days I will surprise you and go to Beatlefest, but I'm not a great traveler anymore, but never you never know. I might go because a lot of my friends went this year, and they said, why aren't you coming? And I just didn't make it, but maybe next year. And it's always a pleasure to have you here, Jude. And let's start by, um, first of all, we just had another anniversary uh, a week or two ago um, of the anniversary of the passing of Cynthia Lennon. And yeah. I had the pleasure of meeting Cynthia many, many years ago, and such a fine uh, lady, a courageous lady, uh, very you know, filled with pride. And I, I told her, you know, I'm so nervous. Uh, and and she's, oh, don't be nervous. You're so sweet. And it was just a pleasure to meet Cynthia Lennon. Uh, tell me about Cynthia in your research. What kind of? I, I certainly know what kind of a person she is. Before our, our listeners, uh, talk to us about Cynthia. Well, first of all, she was a very smart lady because she was absolutely right. You are so sweet. She got that right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Cynthia was wise, very wise. She was wise enough to know that there was no way that her husband was going to be the kind of husband that her father had been. He wasn't going to be a pipe and slippers man. And in order for him to be happy, he was going to have to be on the road. And that being on the road with being, you know, in his early 20s and unbelievably popular and sought after by females all over the planet. 
she absolutely <laughs> knew that he wasn't going to be 100% faithful, but that wasn't what she was looking for. She knew that she was the center of his stability, that he always, he called her every single night when he was on the 1964 North American tour. Not uh, That's not from me. That's from Ivor Davis, who was the only journalist that was there on the entire tour. That's from Larry Kane, who was there for most of the tour. It's from Art Schreiber, who was there all but one week of the tour. He joined a week late because he was covering the Democratic National Convention. All of these people said John carved out time in every day to go and call Cynthia. When he went to Paris in January of 1964 and had one day off, he took that one day off. The other three Beatles went touring about, seeing the countryside. He went back to London to spend the night with his wife. He didn't have to. He chose to do it. He always came back to her because she was his rock. Um, Tony Barrow said, in every instance when John would be nervous, upset, dismayed, afraid, he would turn to Cynthia. She was his peace. And it, you know, it, it was very true. She, Cynthia was not dumb. There are so many books that talk about the fact that when they went on their trip in 1965 to Saint Moritz to ski, that John was sitting there on the bed rehearsing um, Norwegian Wood and then singing it for George Martin and Judy in front of Cynthia and that she was totally oblivious. Cynthia wasn't oblivious. She could understand the words as well as anyone else, but she made a decision, and her decision was that her marriage was above those petty things, and she had a child to rear, and they had a life together, and it was more important than some one-night stand, and she chose to ignore the things that were small and to look toward the things that were larger, and that really was what John needed. There's that great quote by uh, Pope John, see everything, overlook a great deal, correct a little. And that's kind of what she did. She's a smart lady. Jude, I, I have a, uh, a couple of questions about their relationship before the Beatles became the Beatles. And a lot of times my my students will, will see Cynthia as, um, <clears throat> in some ways after a certain amount of time, a little bit of a figure to be pitied. Uh, because John seemed to have, uh, you know, not being uh, the pipe and slippers type, but obviously something uh, very much the opposite of that. And and there was somehow patient Cynthia at home with the child. But um, I think I'm curious about the way you have covered their first meetings and why they would have been mutually attracted to each other if it was instantaneous or not at art school. Because that, that was a place where John was finally free in some ways to to be himself or to figure out himself publicly, fashion, music, right. everything that that setting in, in art school gave him. And so why and how do you feel as though they came together in that particular environment? Well, I think it was against all odds because she already had a boyfriend, as, as you know, and a pretty serious relationship at that point. In fact, you know, when John asked her to dance at the end of term bash, she said to him, well, I'm, in, you know, I'm engaged to someone else. And he said, well, I didn't ask you to marry me, did I? <laughs> um, she, was, she was pretty seriously involved with someone else. John was the rascal. He's the one that when they ask him to draw uh, the life model, June Furlong, in the portraiture class, instead of drawing the 
nude figure of June balanced precariously on her stool at the front of the room. He drew only her wristwatch. Um, he was the one that would shout in the middle of class and call out and be you know, sent out of the room at times, even in college, he could be a disruptive figure. Well, he was and never, he was never a great student. That wasn't going to necessarily change at, uh, at, uh, at art college. And in fact, you know, Cynthia was certainly much more diligent and, and certainly a better student. And this is something she was going to, uh, follow as a, uh, as a vocation. Um, right. we, we kind of, we kind of talk a little bit about, was she necessarily drawn to the disruptors? Students, will like to sort of take a little bit of di- of a diversion and express their own sense of, yes, I'm often drawn to people I know who are bad for me. <laughs> I, right, I, I'm, right. I'm young enough where I can survive toxic relationships. And so we try to get into the psychology of that. Do you think that that was sort of part of her motivation? I'm sure that it was part of that and that he was just the one. I mean, when she saw that famous episode when she's in the back of the auditorium and sees his best friend, Helen Anderson, who later became the dress designer for Dallas, by the way, the TV show Dallas, running her hands through John's hair, Cynthia was just sick with jealousy. And she's like, he is nothing that I should want. He gets in trouble. He doesn't do his homework. He's always catching cigarettes from me. He, he, I know that he's up to no good, but I can't help it. And then, of course, as they really began to see each other and he began to pour his heart out to her about the loss of his mother twice, you know, first when he was a child and then later to death, and she began to pour out her heart to him about the loss of her father, and the two of them found out they really had a lot in common. Um, They began to build a real relationship, but I think at first it was a lot of just attraction. It is tricky if if you're bonding over your wounds and how and your damages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and and John loved Bridget Bardot and uh Cynthia, you know, changed their hair to look <laughs> more like uh Bridget Bardot, correct? Oh, she did. She changed her whole look, the fishnet hose, the skirts, uh, you know, she really changed, and it, I keep thinking about that song. I, who is it that sang Don't Make Me Over? Chachi, you probably know. I love that song, Don't Make yeah, Me Over. Yeah, and, you know, it just, <laughs> she really, she changed everything. She would not have been a girl that would have been found at Ye Crack, the pub, the college pub, very close to Liverpool College of Art on Rice Street. She wasn't a girl who would have missed classes to go to Hamburg to spend a week with her boyfriend. But John broadened her horizons just as she brought stability to his. It it was a good symbiotic relationship. And people forget that this was a very happy marriage for a long, long time. They start dating in 19, the end of the term, 1959. And they go all the way through 19, well, they meet, he meets Yoko in the late 60s, and the, really the marriage goes all the way through the end of the 60s. They're together for 10 years. That's a long relationship. Mm-hmm. This myth that they didn't really love each other and John was in love for the first time when he met Yoko is absolutely not true. They had a very happy marriage for a long time. And what did Cynthia's parents think, uh, think of uh, a young John Lennon? Well, of course, her father uh, had died by the time that John came along, but um, Lillian Powell did not like John one little tiny bit and never, ever 
tried to disguise it, not even when John bought her a house close to Kenwood in Waybridge and moved her out very, very close to where he and Cynthia lived so that she could come over and help Cynthia with Julian and be a part of family life. And she was there almost every day, but she was always scowling at John and never approved of anything he did and never tried to hide it. To John's credit, he did not talk back to her. He did not pick a fight with her. He did not argue with her. He just kept his tongue because he wanted his wife to be happy and her mother being there was part of what made her happy. Even when John became famous and uh, well-to-do, she she never loosened up and, and liked John at all? Didn't like him a bit. Was a thorn in his flesh throughout the Beatle years. 1965 especially, that's what I'm working on right now in Volume 5, and she, every day of his life, not only is she always scowling at him and, you know, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that, no, you're going away again, and I see how it is, and she was always on him. She also would go out and purchase all sorts of things for their house, charge it to him, and come home, and he said, I don't want any more stuff. Don't bring any more stuff into the house, and she would keep doing it anyway, so she was a... True mother-in-law. <laughs> wow. And then, of course, Aunt Mimi didn't really like Cynthia. Not a bit. The gangster's mall, <laughs> she what? called her that time that John bought her that brown coat. No, she didn't approve of her. She didn't make things easy on her. You know, when Julian was born that night that she does go into labor, which was last night, you know, in the middle of the night, Cynthia called an ambulance to come get her um, because she Mimi wasn't about to take her or go in a taxi with her. And as she was leaving to go to the hospital, she could see Mimi peeking out of the curtains, looking from her bedroom window and doesn't come down, doesn't say anything to her, offer any help. Cynthia had a tough road. When you're talking, David, about your students sort of pitying her, one of my saddest, saddest stories of Cynthia is um, she's at a party in London, and I think this is like 65, and John isn't paying any attention to her, and so she goes upstairs to the hostess's bedroom and hides herself in the armoire. And, you know, she's there for quite a while, and the door opens, and the hostess says to her, Cynthia, I'm the only one who knows you're here. He's not going to come looking for you. Just come back down to the party. Well, wow. yeah, I mean, they, it's, it's a, it's a combination of, of pity and historically going back and being angry on her behalf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, but it, to be fair, I mean, she could have said, you know, enough is enough. I'm done with this. Stop. Yeah. But she didn't. And she truly loved him. I think if we could go back and circle one ingredient and say, okay, let's remove this ingredient from the mix. I think history would have been different if drugs hadn't come into play. I think they might, they might not have lasted forever, but I think they would have lasted much longer than they did because after Cynthia's accidental experiment with LSD, she never wanted to try it again. She did not like drugs, and she felt that she needed to be coherent and on top of things for her son. And so the two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and John went down one path and she went down the other, and there was really no returning to the point where they started to split. Unbelievable. That's, I'm, I'm shocked that, uh, that Cynthia's mom hated John throughout up till the end. 
and of oh, course, yeah. and of course, you know, uh, it's pretty well known that Mimi wasn't fond of Cynthia. But here we are today uh, on this day when we're talking to Jude Sutherland Kessler, uh, John Lennon authority. Uh, today is the birthday of Julian Lennon, born April eighth, nineteen sixty-three, if my memory serves me correct. Mm-hmm. And here we are celebrating Julian's birthday and. Everyone knows the story that, uh, you know, Julian was born and John goes on vacation with uh, Brian Epstein to Spain. Right. So take right. us back to that and tell us, uh, set it up for our listeners about how, how all that happened and how that Well, of course, that really doesn't happen until May. So he, John is there for several weeks ah, when okay. Julian comes right. home from the hospital. Right. I mean, he announces to her that he's going to go and explains why he's going to go. But he, you know, he's playing a gig when Julian is born. He's away. He doesn't see him for several days. And she's terrified because Julian is born with a rather large mole on the top of his head and and she's afraid that John is going to think he's ugly and doesn't you know not attractive and but no he is absolutely over the moon with him when he sees him of course that famous quote who's going to be a little rocker like his dad mm-hmm. and he's you know overwhelmed by him but practicality sets in when the baby comes home and there are dirty nappies and he's crying and he's colicky he's, was born a bit jaundiced he was not healthy at first and so, you know, John is overwhelmed by this fatherhood that he never really intended to have. He's, he loves his son, but still, he, we, we have to remember how young he is and that things are pulling him away, constantly pulling him away. This is the point where he and Paul begin to argue about who is actually running the band. And Paul is asserting his authority and saying, look, it it should be McCartney and Lennon, not Lennon and McCartney. And he begins to assert his authority in the studio. And John very sagely decides he's invited to go on vacation with Brian, and he decides, I'm going to go. Because spending, everyone just calls it the Barcelona trip. Well, Barcelona was the last of many other cities on the Spanish Riviera that they visited over 12 days. It was a long trip, but I'm going to cement my role in the Beatles by getting to know this man, becoming his dear friend, and I am going to put myself where I need to be at the front of the band, and he does. He and Brian become very, very, very close friends, and um, it was the right move to make, even though it was a bad time, you know. I'm sure Cynthia wasn't happy about it, but Julian wouldn't remember the absence, and it was the right power play to make for the Beatles. And Cynthia, you know, says, yeah, you can go. She put John ahead of everything. She just let John do what he needed to do, and she understood, and she stayed behind. That says something about Cynthia. Yeah. And so here we are years later, and, uh, you know, Julian, that, that was a special bond between Julian and his mom. Certainly when John left, he wasn't really a father uh, to Julian as much as he was to Sean during this time. And um, so their their close, closeness through the years just stayed intact, Julian and Cynthia Lennon. And you can see that on his Facebook feed and always remembering his mom. And, yeah, uh, he, they were very close, and they went through some very difficult financial times, and he said that kids at school would say to him, you know, oh, you're John Lennon's son. I'm sure that your bedroom is papered in 100-pound notes, and they 
didn't like him and bullied him because he, they thought he was some rich kid. And one of his stepfathers, he uh, had a very tough time with, Twist. And he, he said he tried to be more of a father to Julian than John had been by being strict with him and making him toe the line. But it sometimes I think it crossed the parameters of being loving and I think he was a little bit jealous of Julian. So Julian did not have an easy road, but in John's defense, you know, when you read the words to Hal, that very powerful song that he wrote in 1971, mm-hmm. right? You know, he's he's just left Cynthia behind just a few years ago, and he's with Yoko, and she's telling him that, you know, he is really not fulfilling her needs either. And he writes this beautiful song. One of the lines I love is, how can I give love when I don't know what it is I'm giving? How can I give love when I don't know how to give? How can I give love when love is something I never had? You know, how can you be expected to be a good father when you didn't have one. I mean, he had Uncle George, loved Uncle George, but no father present. So part of what we become is what we've experienced, and he did not have the love, a surplus of love, to overflow onto anyone else. Sometimes, uh, you know, we, we do approach this in in class where um, certainly John and Paul could have measured the size of the chips on their shoulders for having lost their mothers so early on in their lives. Right, right. And um, Paul approached it very differently from John, almost diametrically opposed to the way that uh, that John approached it. And um, <clears throat> there are a lot of factors at play, right? I mean, one can say, I am the type of parent that all I know because of the way I was raised, or you can decide I'm going to take a different path and I'm going to start to correct whatever I felt as though the deficiencies were. Um, And it does get very difficult to go back and defend in some ways because some of the students I've had over the years have, have come from troubled circumstances, from broken homes, from abusive homes, and it's kind of very hard to explain away or defend John's abusiveness, which he will talk about in song and he will try to change into something else through his, through his art, but it is still there. And it's, it is. And it's, it's very, it is very difficult to, uh, to, to deal with. And it does explain in some ways, I think, uh, uh, Julian's almost, you know, grafted on genetically closeness to his mother in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. and uh, his ultimate defense of her. You know, mm-hmm. I agree. There are a couple things. One, you know, there's that famous quote that says, "The same hot water that softens the carrot hard boils the egg." So, you know, people react differently to tragedy, and Paul loses his mother to illness, but he hasn't been abandoned by her earlier and left to be reared by an aunt and then found out that, wow, my mom is living only a mile away, and not only is she still present, but she has two other children, so it's not children she doesn't like. It's obviously me. I'm the problem. So you start off with a different slate a different set of parameters and 
Paul copes in a different way. Paul copes by reaching out and being friendly. He's always so gregarious. He's the PR man. He reaches out to everyone. But you talk to people who work with Paul, you from George Martin to Denny Lane to Lawrence Juber, and you will get the distinct impression that in many ways he's passive-aggressive. John is just aggressive. Right. No, no, yeah. (laughs) Paul has a very good mask, if you will. Right. Uh, But the the, the, pain is still there and the anger is still there. The velvet glove over the iron fist. Exactly. Um, but, uh, right, and John was more very you know, open about his aggressiveness. I mean, you know, pick your pick your poison in some ways. I think yeah. that the the uh, the psychologist now would have would have been able to label John as as suffering greatly from what we call um, uh, reactive attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, sort of terminology that the students know, whether or not yeah. they've taken their general psychology requirement. Uh, and so they they want to sort of, you know, uh, put John yet again on on the couch, and uh, it, it do that through the, the analysis through uh, through the music, and so the, you know, his first marriage becomes a great sort of uh, test case for them because they're trying to figure out just exactly what you're talking about. You know, I mean, why would Cynthia be so willing to accept the the babies there? I'm off with Brian, and the way you describe it is exactly the way we talk about it. It was it was a very shrewd. Uh, move on on John's part, and uh, whether or not history washes out the the sort of uh, whether or not there was a um, uh, a sexual consummation of the relationship with Brian and and uh, John, it was it was a lot of it was about uh, power and manipulation uh, and a way to sort of uh, control that direction of the group, um, at least via the manager and everything else that John wanted to do. Uh, until he really couldn't necessarily do it much longer musically, and then what was going on musically became who had the power in the group. But that would take a few years to come out. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm here to tell you about an affliction that affects millions of Americans every year. It's growing, and there's no end in sight. I'm talking, of course, about Podcast Envy. Hi, I'm George. I suffered from podcast envy. Sure, I had a podcast, but it wasn't the biggest deal. It was just insignificant compared to other podcasts. I felt so inadequate. Hi, I'm Buck. I felt myself consistently looking at other podcasts. They seemed so massive. My friends and I were finally able to conquer podcast envy when I found the Boston Podcast Network. They gave us a new podcast, a mighty powerful one too. They even gave it a name. Shawshanked. We finally had a podcast, one we could hold up high and be proud of. We were now able to whip out our podcast and expose it publicly. Thousands of people received our podcast on the internet on pod617.com. Some enjoy our podcast in bits and spurts. Many prefer to swallow it whole. Either way, don't wait any longer. Please act now. End your own podcast envy. Go to pod617.com and take hold of your own podcast. Find our podcast Shawshank. See if you can handle it. Don't be ashamed of your little podcast. Get a big one at pod617.com. So um, let's talk. I think the natural progression here is to talk about John's dad, Freddie Lennon. um, He came back to John several times, if my memory serves me correctly, and Jude, you're the perfect person to correct me. Um, I think they met once in uh, in Brian Epstein's office, Mm -hmm. and they met again when Freddie 
walked up to John's front door and knocked on the door and they answered the door and there's Freddie Lennon. And if my memory serves me correctly, that was around April 1965. And, Absolutely. And they never really got on. Uh, John really uh, was had a, had a chip on his shoulder when it came to his dad. But I don't think John knew that his dad was writing him often and sending the letters and Mimi wouldn't show them to John. Is that correct? Yeah, Fred tells him that at that first meeting in Brian's office in 1964. And it's funny because you read all the accounts that people give of that meeting and they say, oh, they didn't like each other and John still was angry after the meeting and John resented it. And John, and then you have to examine what happens right after that meeting with Fred. They had an interview. And in the interview, which happened minutes after Brian walked in and said, sorry, John, but I need to cut this short because you have a scheduled interview. In the interview, John is witty and funny and laughing and smiling. He told Pete Shotton they had a great talk, he and his father, and that he liked him. He said, he's just like me, Pete. And in the interview, John is in a fantastic mood. So... All of this bitterness that he supposedly had, I don't think happened. He volunteered at the end of the meeting with Fred. He said, leave your name and address, and I'll get in touch. And he starts sending him money. Fred didn't ask for money, but John willingly starts sending him a little bit of money and a note every now and then. And they, what happens is that they, John will like him for a while, and then all of the old resentment comes back and then they fight and then he tries and they try again and then they fight and then they try again. John just had a really difficult time forgiving and forgetting. And I struggle with the same thing. It's very hard to just move on. And my heart goes out to him because most people, had they been abandoned at age four and a half, had they grown up with Mimi, who was very strict, duty-bound, had they lost Uncle George when they were 14 and a half and needed a, a male role model, I mean, I, you just go on and on and on. Had most people lived through John's life, I don't think they could have made it. I really don't. And then Freddie shows up at the front door and stays with John for a few days, and then John tells him to leave, correct? Yeah, I mean, he does, he stays almost like a week and a half, and then John says, you know, you need to move on, you need to, you can't just stay here in the house. I don't know if that was mainly Cynthia being uncomfortable with him being there, John being uncomfortable with him being there, but he doesn't want someone else, he's already got Lillian, he doesn't want Fred to live there. And But he does help him financially get his own place and make his own way. Uh, it just... He really was not comfortable with that relationship ever. And then certainly it didn't help when uh, Freddie marries a younger woman. Right, Pauline. Pauline, and releases a song <laughs> called That's My Life. Right. You know, that's when you start to think I'm being used. And I'm sure that that happened on a daily basis. Someone that pretends to be your friend is really only your friend because you're rich and famous. And your barrier is up. You really don't know who is being nice to you because they want a part of the game. And at that point, 
they really had a big separation for quite a long time until he found out that his father was very ill. It, it was a difficult struggle. And, I, you know, I think that anyone whose childhood has been interrupted that much almost never recovers. It is, I know it's a decision, and I hear what you're saying, David, about you know, the fact that we choose. You, you're talking about your students who have struggled with abuse. Some people are able to overcome it, but I think the vast majority of people walk around scarred. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's certainly true. And then Mimi, um, she, through the years, she she began. Did she begin to like Cynthia at all? Did did anything change between Mimi and and Cynthia as John's you know popularity and celebrity grew? Not really. I mean, they invited Mimi to come visit them many times at Kenwood, and she would only come once or twice. She preferred John to come visit her and come by himself. They they really never became close friends. I mean, Cynthia lived with her during the time that she was pregnant, but she made Cynthia chop up the fish for the cats, and Cynthia was nauseated anyway, and I think she just they just never found a happy relationship. She never thought that Cynthia was good enough for John and Lillian never thought that John was good enough for Cynthia. And somehow, Unbelievable. That, yeah. The right vibe never happened with the in-laws. <laughs> that's crazy. The parents causing more trouble in their kids' lives. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, uh, uh, I think, uh, um, uh, we, we had talked about it before on a previous version of this, uh, podcast that uh, even um, Jim McCartney didn't like his son hanging out with, quote-unquote, that Lennon, right? So, right. Uh, and all the flies that came with John were, you know, too much for, uh, you know, parental figures to, uh, to deal with. And I think, you know, Mimi always wanted to draw that ring of fire around John. So I don't think there was anybody ever going to be good enough for him, uh, yeah. except for Mimi herself, which is sort of, I think, what... Um, if there was one part of that dynamic that the uh, uh, the the film Nowhere Boy sort of got right, in my opinion, uh, was that sense of of Mimi's fierceness and uh, you know the sense of needing to protect John long after he needed that protection. That's exactly right, and you know she really waged a campaign with Pop Stanley to get John. She, David Bedford. I don't know if you've seen David Bedford's great book. I mean, great film, Looking for Lennon. Yes. Ugh phenomenal film yes and he talks about the fact that Mimi you know constantly said to her father look Julia is not caring for him properly she's going out at night playing her banjo at the Smithdown pubs uh, at the pubs on Smithdown Road the, she constantly leaves him by himself he's not being given good care and just kept on until he finally made the patriarchal decision that the boy needs to live with Mimi and George. They'll give him a better home. They'll give him a better education. They'll make sure that he gets to church. And he finally just puts his foot down and says this is the way it's going to go. But she had waged a desultory war for several years to get that little boy. So, um, you know, it's the whole thing is very complex and very sad. And one of the heroes in this whole story is Uncle George who yeah. really loved John, I suspect, and did a lot to help John. And he dies young and leaves John alone again. And I find that just, I mean, it always happens to this to John. Stu Sutcliffe, his mom, yep. 
His father's gone. He finally has a father figure in his life, Uncle George, and then George passes away. I know. It is just so very sad. He was George Too Good Smith was too good. I mean, this is the guy that teaches him to read from the Liverpool Echo and always hides a barley sweet under his pillow at night and takes him to the picture drones when Mimi says he can't go and spoils him rotten. He is a he is the father figure that John has. But you know, he's fourteen and a half when he's sent away to Scotland to go on holiday and they full well know when they send him away that George is very, very ill and is going to die. You know, I know they thought they were protecting him, but not to be able to say goodbye, not to be able to go to the funeral. George is buried by the time he comes home and there's no closure. Again, a huge emotional scar. I am beside myself. Scar. I'm beside myself listening to this. Well, How I could mean, they do this to John? Well, you know, Mimi felt... Yeah, these are people who uh, these are people who lived through the war, right? Yeah. And so yeah. if there's if there's the if there's the dark side to keep calm and carry on, this is it. You know, it's You're right. the, the the sort of uh, the 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 propriety of of uh, middle class English life, even if it was lower middle class, Mimi was a striver in some ways, right? And mm-hmm. so um, <clears throat> everything had to be kept just so, and uh, she felt as though she was protecting John from that, right? Mm-hmm. Even it's going to be trauma one way or the other. Why magnify it? I suppose she's thinking in that in that way. Yes, you're you're right. You hear him singing about it and cry, baby, cry. Years later, you're old enough to know better. You know, mm-hmm. she was always. Stiff upper lip, brave face, carry on. And you know what? It serves John well. He, anybody would have the schedule that these guys had in 1964. They're getting up in March of 64 at about 5.30 in the morning. They have to be on set for hair and makeup so that at, right at 8 a.m. they start making the film. They make a hard day's night. At lunchtime, they're being interviewed by journalists and reporters, or they go to the Variety Club and accept an award, or they're doing an interview for radio. They work the rest of the afternoon making the film. 5.30, the other actors go home. They go to a television studio to make a television program. John goes home around 10 o'clock at night. The Jonathan Cape person who's working with him to put out in his own right. Tom Mashler is waiting for him, helping him edit the book, do the illustrations. He goes to bed at midnight and is up again at 5.30 and does it all over again. (laughs) No one worked as hard as the Beatles did. And the only way that John got through that was Mimi's teaching him to be determined and strong and never give up and wear that brave face and keep going. So she does fulfill her role. She she does some good things, too. It takes both Julia and Mimi to produce what we know as John Lennon. Well, I mean, that that is quite a schedule, but, but uh, each of them thought uh, this is better than working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, better than, than, than having yeah. a, a, a proper job. But, you know, all of... Uh, uh, Mimi's regimen, if you will, uh, you know, carries him so far. I, I think of the the period of um, uh, just maybe around the time of uh, the the volume that uh, Chachi has on the table here, uh, volume four, where um, the famous laziness starts to kick in. His self avowed laziness and. Uh, 
um, writing songs about it. There's the great sort of song cycle of of I'm too lazy to do anything and the world is crazy to be running around uh, around me and I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to sit here and and revel in um revel in my uh, uh my my sloth if you will and you know I mean some of that takes a darker turn right where he'll look back on part of this period around help as his fat elvis period um as you're almost getting into sort of the end of this volume um you know and and uh Paul has to go out to get him up every day to uh, uh, you know, to be productive in a sense, you know, taking over a little bit of that Mimi role, uh, Paul does, which you know, uh, I'm sure he gets a lot of crap for it, uh, but he's you know, in a sense, <laughs> Paul becomes a a a transitional spouse figure between mm. between Cynthia and Yoko. Interesting, very interesting. I think, you know, because Paul would arrive and he'd sit in the kitchen and have some breakfast or whatever with uh, Cynthia and visit with her for a while, and then John would get up and come down. I think he would have gotten up anyway, but having Paul there when he gets up is always very convenient because they can go right to work. I don't think Paul really, you know, he was needed to get him going, but having him there was great. But the funny thing is that when he's writing these songs, like I'm only sleeping and talks about how unproductive he's being he's writing a great song a better song than anybody could write so you know it's rather tongue-in-cheek because he is he's not floating downstream he's floating upstream and he's being extremely creative while telling us that he's being lazy yeah he's a nowhere man and he writes one of the greatest songs you know yeah by the beatles nowhere man it's pretty interesting stuff and jude sutherland kessler tell us about the book now I will say books. Your, I think your goal is to be to write nine volumes. I think the last time we spoke, that was the target. You're up to four, and uh, it's been a amazing process for you. Twenty plus years of research, traveling, and meeting everyone in the Beatles inner circle. And just the other day, I interviewed uh, Ken Mansfield, and I found that interview that conversation to be really uh, unbelievable. Um, and I know you've met Ken, you've met Ken before, and right. he talked about the day that uh, they were all in a meeting with John and Yoko, and John pulls out photographs of them naked, and right. it was going to be the Two Virgins album. <laughs> and we he talked about how Paul was so loyal to John that uh, you know Ken grabbed him on the side and said, "So Paul, what do you think of these pictures?" And he was like, "You know." It's John. Uh, I, I follow his lead because he knows where he's going, and he is probably just a little more ahead on these things than I am. But I'm going to be catching up to him. Something to that res- regard. Yeah. But yeah. you know, John was turning the world upside down by leaving Cynthia, and Cynthia did not get a good settlement at all. And I think that has something to do with the fact that Cynthia was so nice that yeah. she ends up getting what a hundred thousand dollars back in the late '60s in a divorce. Right, which right. Is, which is so wrong right there. And no percentage of royalties in, in perpetuity. Yeah. And right, t- and, and loses Kenwood initially. He regrets it and then lets her move back in. But at first, she's even kicked out of the house. Right, and then, you know, the John and Yoko thing, and here he is, uh, wants to put out a, an album called Two Virgins. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. Go ahead. And when he sings, don't let me down, every time he sings, I've told you this before, I know, but every time he sings, I'm in love for the first time, I always shout, jerk, you know, it is not, it's not true, you know, that's not true, and it's not a kind thing to say, and it's not a, 
a right thing to say. But, you know, John was going through the roughest period of his life. When he sings your blues, and he says it, there's a, a quote in which he says, I was in a deep depression at that time. I was suicidal. When he sings that song, you're hearing where he is. Nothing has been able to make him happy. He thought that the hole in his heart that was placed there by the loss of his mother and father when he was a little boy would be filled if only he could have someone love him. She comes back in his life. She's taken from his life. Stu comes into his life. Stu is taken from his life. His marriage with Cynthia doesn't work out. It isn't what he thought it was going to be. Fame isn't what he thought it was going to be. He's still unhappy. Money doesn't make him happy. Power doesn't make him happy. Drugs don't make him happy. The Maharishi doesn't make him happy. He's not happy. And when you are that low and that miserable, my mother used to say, when you're sick, the world ends at the foot of your bed. And he does not see beyond the misery he's enduring to care about the misery that someone else might be enduring. He was very, very unhappy at that time. And it, it reached out to others, believe me. So here we are. Jude Sutherland Kessler, nine volumes. You're up to volume number four right now. Tell us where you're going next. With, with the book. I am working away on Volume 5, Shades of Life, which will be 1965. Volume 4 is just from the 1st of March, 1964, until the last day of 1964. So look at that big, thick thing. That's only, what, 10, 10 months that it covers, or 9 months that it covers. But everything that they did in 64, 65, 66, 67 was documented so we are getting exactly what they said, what they wore, what they ate, what they did, but you're reading it as if you're reading, it looks like you're reading a novel, but it is all footnoted and documented. There are over 4,400 footnotes in that book, and the things that I couldn't get from all the 500-plus the books that I have in my home on John, I got through interviews, talking to the stewardesses who were on the Electra 2, the person whose dad owned the Electra 2, Reed Pigman Jr., who happened to be with the Beatles at the Pigman Ranch in Missouri, talked to members of the Bill Black Combo, talked to all the journalists who were on the 64 tour, any, anyone that is still around and can tell the story. I'm interviewing a lot of people who were at the concerts and getting their takes on what they remember. I've got a whole slew of people lined up who were in 65 at the Hollywood Bowl and Shea Stadium, and we're going we're gonna to see things from the fans' perspectives, trying to tell the whole story as definitively as can be told. And every day I hear from people, a lady called me from California today, and she said, Jude, on page 94, there's a mistake. Um, you've, you've got the wrong name for... Uh, Iris Caldwell's her nickname was, and she goes into it. So I'm taking notes on everything that anyone finds out, fixing everything, dotting every I, crossing every T. Hopefully when I leave here, this earth, we will have a nine-volume story that tells exactly what happened to John from birth to death. Do, what relatives still are alive in Liverpool? Any relatives of John? Are they still around? No, it's Uncle Charlie. Of course, Julia, you know, Julia Baird sure. is, is still um, very much active in restoring Strawberry Fields Correct. and 
working on that project, and um, Jackie is around, but not in Liverpool. Uh, Uncle Charlie passed away mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, really, a lot of the family is gone, but thankfully, Julia has been extremely helpful, very, very sweet. And um, I got to talk to Uncle Charlie before he passed. It's you know, All of the people of Liverpool have been helpful. Rod Murray was helpful, Helen Anderson. In fact, I just talked to Helen again um, not too long ago, and they all offered their stories Bill Harry's always been so sweet to help me with every single volume. Most of the people took their stories, read them, and corrected them and would say, well, you have everything right except four. And then they would give me a detail, like Bill Harry said, you have me sitting in the wrong room of ye crack. You need to put me in the back room and put me under the painting of Lord Nelson. So they're very picky about getting the details right, and that's exactly what I need. Well, there you go. Should have been there, Volume 1, Shivering Inside, Volume 2, She Loves You, Volume 3, Should Have Known Better, Volume 4, the John Lennon series. You can go to johnlennonseries.com and pick up any of these volumes from the great Jude Sutherland Kessler, the world's authority on the life of John John Lennon. And uh, we should have you come to Boston and speak at at the professor's class. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, every... every, uh, Every Johnson needs their Boswell, and, and you're John's Boswell. Do you know you're the only person who has ever said that, and that is exactly what I asked. Well, we, we, we spent, uh, both of us spent too much time in graduate school in literature departments, I guess. I mean, that's my life's goal, really, so there you have it. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Isn't that great, Professor? I had no idea what you're talking about. Uh, we, uh, uh, Jude, Jude and myself and others like us, we, we have our own language that we speak. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it doesn't matter whether it's Louisiana, Maryland, or Alabama, Troy State, or Suffolk University, there's a common language that we speak. It made my day. <laughs> Professor, your students, do, do the majority of them think that John Lennon is their favorite Beatle? Uh, it changes over time, Chachi. I think that some students who come in fiercely as Lennon fans, um, maybe brought up in an era still, uh, um, maybe influenced, uh, by his, uh, canonization, St. John of Lennon, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> they actually come down off of that perch and they see him much more, uh, in, in human terms. And then they start to decide, Whose music uh, maybe affects the most? You know that um, you know. At the end of the day, it's easier for them to imagine themselves having a pint with Ringo <laughs> mm-hmm. than any of the others. Uh, yeah. We've talked about this a lot before. Is that uh, um, they'll often be surprised at how much affinity they feel for George? Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, John, he had a biting sense of humor, and if you were the uh, the recipient of his uh, insults, it wasn't fun. Wrong end of the stick. You could, you would you would be uh, you would be hurt by it certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that quote you you like someone because you love someone. Although <laughs> pe- true Lennon people have to use that word. Although you know you, you there's there is a barb to that rose, and you have to know it. And if you can accept that, then great. But there, the barb is definitely there. You know, and John was the type of guy, he said one thing one day, and I'm, I'm this way, I think a lot of people are like this. One day you feel one way, another day you feel another. As I'm doing my radio show every week, and I'm playing a certain song, and I'll get some background on it, uh, there's many quotes where John said, oh, that song was garbage, that was a throwaway, that was a throwaway. 
but the next day he probably feels differently. And uh, But he was an interesting, a very complex man, went through a lot. But if he didn't go through that, we wouldn't have the Beatles today. Yeah, he took the pain that he was enduring and transformed it into the soundtrack of our lives, that's for sure. And it, the alchemy has benefited all of us. We, we are the recipients of that magic. It would have been very easy when I went to Quarry Bank and interviewed the head boy there, Dave Binion. He said, to me, John Lennon was a salt. And I don't mean salt of the earth. I mean salt in an open wound. And he said, I did not think that anything good would ever come from him. But look, he took all of those troubles that were surrounding him in high school and made it into something wonderful. He endured. And to me, that's the positive takeaway. That's true, because, you know, kids that age, they can either take a right turn or a left turn, end up one of the greatest voices in rock and roll, or end up in jail. You know, (laughs) and John, you know, used all of that negativity in his life and and certainly he had his demons, uh, but he gave us many, many gifts, and we're still celebrating all those today. That's a lot of That's what right. uh, we talk about in class, Chachi, a lot of the other sort of uh, rock and roll heroes or, or um, uh, pop culture uh burnout cases or disasters if you will and how it's amazing that the Beatles survived that right and yeah. that uh, uh, obviously a, a, a crazed person uh, uh, took John out of this world cancer took George but uh, that those things had to arise in order for, for this to happen that they did not implode they did not go off the rails they did not do themselves in amazingly so uh, right. so there was that, that sort of survival uh, uh, instinct that because I think they always felt that they still had something to share and they still had something to say. And, uh, you know, I think if we're, we had talked about Cynthia and Julian on the, you know, event of his birthday, um, uh, same age as I am, he's a few months older. Uh, and um, that one song John felt was his songwriting partner's best, one that he loved was, of course, Hey Jude. And partly because his songwriting partner crafted a song and a message in a way, to John's son that John could never do. And I think that's why right. he really appreciated it. It was a, it was a communication that, that he couldn't make to his own son. And, right. uh, but Uncle Paul did in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, not everyone can <clears throat> kick heroin. You know? and, and John and Yoko were deep into heroin, if I'm not mistaken. And for them to kick it, uh, a lot of people don't. And yeah. we could have lost him that way. Uh, yeah. And then you think about that beautiful creation of Good Night, uh, which I think is one of the most gorgeous songs that the, that the Beatles ever put on record. And of course, that's John singing to Julian. And it will, you listen to it and listen to those words, and it will, it will break your heart. Beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, and and also, it, yeah. in a little bit of a matter of deferral, it is John singing to his son, but. Oh, yeah. Only only Ringo could sing it in John's mind, you know yeah. that that was that right. was Ringo's song right. to sing. So he didn't. He it was almost too close for him to be able to deliver. And, and did yep. did John pass on these some of these demons to Julian? I mean, Julian has not had it easy. Uh, certainly, the treatment by Yoko, which has changed, I think, over the years. Uh, but poor Julian, through all this, uh, stuck in the middle between him and C- John and Cynthia. Uh, no money. Uh, having to grovel to Yoko for money, and uh, but you know Julian's getting through just like his dad did, and he's surviving. Yeah, and I read a, sort of a sad quote today. It's in a little book that was put out, my, I guess, 
you know, right after John's death, Avon superstars, John Lennon, Julian Lennon, but it has a quote from John in it, and it says, um, when he's asked in December of 1980, right before his death, about his relationship with his son, he says, it's not the best relationship between father and son, but it's there. Julian and I will have a relationship in the future. Isn't And that's so, that's so it's really sad. And yep. I, I get chills uh, and I goosebumps on my arm because it was so close. And just like John was so close to things that were taken away from him, the same has happened to Julian. And it's yep. very, very sad. And, you know, Julian walks around, you know, looking for the white feather, <laughs> you know, looking for the signs from his dad. And they were, going to, they were going to have a relationship. They probably would have worked on music together. There would have been so many great things. But just like his, his dad, Julian lost his dad. Uh, and it's just, yep. it's a sad story. And, but here we are. And, uh, I know, just never put off, you know, never put off, never think it's going to happen in the future. What you need to do, do it today because you have no guarantee. That is correct. And that's why we're going to say we love you, Jude, and we appreciate you coming on the show. I've known Jude for many, many years. How many years have we known you now, Jude? Well, at least 10, or maybe 11, Chachi. I did my very, very first interview after my first book came out with you. I was so <laughs> nervous. <laughs> and I was so appreciative, and I always look forward to being with you, and it just is, is great. And now you've got David, so we've got good cop, bad cop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one is which. Uh, well, I get, uh, I still get nervous talking to Jude because I want to, I want to have really, uh, you know, intellectual <laughs> questions, but, uh, but I'm just so comfortable talking to Jude. I'm just sitting back having my soda and having a conversation with. She is so beloved, Professor, by Beetle people all over the world uh it it really is great to see and i always love the she's everywhere beetles at the ridge and the you know she goes to every event and randy is a saint saint randy is the book i'm going to be writing uh uh, jude's husband give uh, randy my best and we appreciate you coming on the show or the podcast it's the john lennon series with the great Jude Sutherland Kessler. I love to say, hey, Jude. And do you, all those, of all four books still available or any of them out of print? Uh, both volumes two and three are out of print, but they're on all ebook formats. And I only have 40 copies left of volume four. So it's almost sold out as well. Uh, but we've printed volume one five times, so we keep reprinting it. It's the entry drug, so you have to have it out <laughs> <Wow>. there. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. And okay, tell us about your podcast and get all your plugs in. Well, we do. I do a podcast with the author of the Recipe Records series, Lena Stagg. It's called She Said, She Said, and we are so excited that we're getting ready to have Rogue Best on our show next week. So thrilled about that. And I'm sure that's going to be so much fun with his new Magical Beatles Museum opened in Liverpool. And just to hear the stories of Mona and Neil and the whole gang, Pete, of course. We love Pete. But um, the main thing is the John Lennon series, johnlennonseries.com. I appreciate from my heart everyone who takes that journey with John. I've gotten to know so many of the readers. I feel like they're my friends and my family, and it just means the world to me that they devote their time in this busy world to read John's story and to keep reading it. And Rogue is really the best. I love Rogue. Such a nice guy and uh, filled with stories. So have fun with Rogue and give him my best. And one of these days, you and I will be in the same room together. We have yet to do that. 
I only I see pictures so. of you. You're very lovely. Oh, and, you, uh, you ha- you've not met? No, not face <laughs> okay. to face. Okay. I don't travel. We need to do a convention in Boston and hire Jude to come here. There's not been a, a good enough reason to go to New Orleans? Uh, uh, the f- yeah, Jude and Get food. There you go. Josh won't even drive to Worcester, as we found out today. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't uh, I'm getting older. I don't like to travel. I have chickens at home as pets, and I got to feed them all day. You know. Well, that. I just I would love to come up there, and I would love to speak to your class, David. That would be so much fun. Well, you know, just uh, dress warm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I speak once a year or so, although I missed last year. And it's a fun class. It's it's fun with the it's freshmen only, right, Professor? Uh, basically, it is freshmen only, and uh, so. Um, now, it has been uh, several years since uh, you were in the classroom, uh, Jude? It has been. Um, I still do a lot of uh, classes. Where I'll go talk about the Beatles and how they changed the world and their music and things like that. But um, teaching my own class, gosh, it's probably been uh, 15 years, I would say. Okay. Well, I mean, if we if we get you up here and... Uh, uh, it, you'll it'll it's just like riding a bike. So uh, yeah. you know they they they're they're a different uh, they're a different breed these days. Whatever generation letter they're on now, I think it's Z or ZZ <laughs> or something like that. Maybe it's ZZ because they're asleep in my class. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't his, believe that. His class at all. Is, his class is a lot of fun, and always go in this food there because it's always great to have. There food. you go. Okay, Jude right. Sutherland Kessler. So great to speak to you and taking the time to join us on our podcast get back to the beatles god bless you jude you take care safe thank travels thank you so much god bless you guys thank you very much okay you thank take you. care sweetie bye bye okay bye bye well there you go professor jude sutherland kessler she's a pretty amazing woman hey uh who knew i'd be able to pull boswell out there you know the famous chronicler of uh dr samuel johnson in the uh in the uh, 18th century in England, uh, Johnson was a famous writer of dictionaries, and Boswell wrote everything that this guy did and followed him around. And I think that Jude's volumes, her Chronicles of Lenin, sort of are are trying to uh, uh, to duplicate that. They're 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 massive, both in, in yeah. you know all the work she's put in. Each one of those so far huge, like almost a thousand pages each. Exactly. And it's written in no- novel form, but it's also has all the backing and the footnotes to verify everything that's in the book. And she has been working on these books for 20 plus years. Her, her husband has put up with that all this time. And uh, she's such a talent and so smart and a clear authority on the she life. She has of a lot of great connections to a lot of the foot soldiers that we know, especially from the early years. To be able to pick up a phone and call Bill Harry, for instance, yeah, uh, Frida Kelly, and they all love her. Yeah, this is you know th- to have those people. Some of the the Liverpool originals share those stories is fantastic. And the fact that, you know, she tells me I was the first one that said yes, because she had people turn her down. You know, can I come on your show? And she called me and I said, yeah, we definitely want you to come on. And uh, and lucky me uh, that I I did that and I have this special relationship with Jude and she always says yes when I ask her for something, but we got to bring her to Boston. You're always worried that you're going to misspell part of her name. Always think that she is from the South. Yes. So it's Southerland. Think of it that way. It's Sutherland, like Sutherland. Road out in Brighton. No, it's Southland. <laughs> I gotta remember that. So, and that really does it for us. David Yaz, our producer. How did that go? Simply fantastic. Okay, well, we don't have Cheers a contest to today. No toys and nothing to play with, but that's okay. No, no. but we have it's other a lovely outro music. Yes, we have other great pods on the Boston Podcast Network. My favorite right now is Monsterland. Um, I love those guys. We had a lot of fun last time we were here talking to Maddie and. 
and just having a good time. I love talking about death and spirituality and ghosts and aliens and but that's for another pod. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Get Back to the Beatles right here in the Boston Podcast Network. Be well, peace, and lunch. Get back, Jojo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.